belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for April 16th, 2023 is called Exodus for the Rest of Us. The speaker is John Ray and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. My name is John Ray. Welcome to the Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas. And I'm going to have a seat today. Those of you who have been here for any amount of time know that occasionally I do this when the topic or the subject matter um, needs a little more attention, a little more um, sobriety with that. We're about to embark on a journey into Exodus, the book of Exodus. It's going to take us all the way to Advent. So we are going to immerse ourselves in the story of, that is the foundational story of the Jewish people. One of being delivered out of slavery and into the promised land. One that forms their whole, a major part of their identity, not the whole of it, but a very major part of their identity comes from this. Um, Exodus looms large in the imagination of the Hebrew people. And we're going to be looking at this, but we're going to be looking at it also with a lens of our own need for Exodus. James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. It wasn't until I was in my mid-30s that the weight of the truth hit me, and when it did, it hit hard. Hard like an unexpected wave that suddenly crashes in, mercilessly tumbles you and pins you to the ocean floor, crushing the breath out of you and robbing you of all sense of direction. I was sitting in the locker room after a swim, talking with a friend who was reeling from an impending divorce. A lifetime of hiding and suppression had led to the sham of a marriage and the shattering of the family. It wasn't all his fault by far, but he was owning his part. My friend and I belonged by chance to the same church and enjoyed early morning swims for exercise, but the most significant commonality we had in our relationship was that we were both adopted. Adopted at birth, I would say. He asked how I dealt with the issues that come from my adoption, and I innocently and naively and honestly at the time responded that I had no such issues. He paused, looked me straight in the eye, and replied, everyone who is adopted has issues. That's when the wave hit. It was one of those rare flashes of insight that alters the entire landscape of your life, redraws the whole map. I instantly saw how I lived subconsciously yet concretely in response to this event. I suddenly saw how much power it had in my life, forming and fomenting fears and coping mechanisms, character traits and choices. I saw the scripts that I had written for myself to try to make emotional sense of it, how it directed and fueled so much of my behavior. Some of that behavior got rewarded. Some of it opened the sluice gates of shame. Because all this happened in a blinding instant, I couldn't possibly take it all in at once. 
In fact, here I sit some 25 years later, still trying to untangle it, to put things in order. Of course, my experience of adoption isn't the only thing that shaped my life. And to be clear, my experience was one of the better ones as far as adoptions go. But it's there, along with all the rest. And as Baldwin so wisely instructs us, true change starts with facing reality. Who we are. Where we are. Why we are. All this plays out on a communal scale as well as an individual, personal one. Communities have histories and personalities like people do. They're just as complex and often just as deeply hidden from others and from the community itself. Exodus is a story of a particular people struggling to face the reality of who they are, where they are, why they are, why they are there. It is a deeply, it's deeply compelling on its own. Just Exodus, just its own state, is deeply compelling on its own. But it also offers us a template for asking our questions. And understanding our own histories and identities. While we may have bursts of insight along the way, it takes time to untangle the story. To process the impact of the experiences and to walk the pilgrim path of healing and wholeness. For the rest of our year, like I said, until Advent, we're going to walk this with Israel on the journey. We're going to walk alongside them. We're going to let their story speak into our own as individuals and as a community, as a small community, as a church as a local community, but also as a, as a larger culture with that. We're going to let them speak into our lives. And, and in turn, we're going to speak to theirs. We believe here at Grace Church that Scripture is an invitation to dialogue, to bring our stories to God through that. And I'm going to warn you all, this won't necessarily be an easy journey. But it is an essential one. I'm probably going to say some things that will make you uncomfortable today. They make me uncomfortable. I'm right there with you. But we'll be consistently asking two questions. What have they, Israel and we, been delivered from? And what, 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 what did they and we be delivered to? Because it's always a process. We're moving from one thing to another. There is no neutral. Like all pilgrimage, it's one we must choose to make. I am giving you the option here to come along. Um, we can't make it alone. So I invite you to journey with us to see what we can find. The story of Exodus provides us with both a major formative history of Israel and a way of exploring our own identities. Our own identities, idols, and where we are in need of a similar Exodus experience. The theologian Richard Hayes writes that a primary role of Scripture in the church is to bring about the conversion of the imagination. Now, as a kid growing up in fundamentalist churches, imagination was almost a dirty word. You want the facts. We want to exegete the word. We want to know the meaning of it and parse it out in detail. And all of those things are, are great. But we're all telling ourselves a story. We live by story. We live by our imagination. And the 
primary purpose, I believe, of Scripture in the community of the church is to convert that imagination. Is to give us a new way of seeing. Is to give us a new way of dreaming, of considering. It gives us a new story, y'all, that sets us free. How we understand and apply the story of Exodus and Scripture as a whole is a primary task of every believer. This is what we do. So how do we do this? And, and we're going to back up a little bit and just give kind of some very basic things of how we do Scripture study here at, at um, Grace. Um, we're going to approach Exodus by using a few pivot scriptures. We're going to encourage you to read far beyond just the scriptures we teach on Sunday morning. And those will be listed in the learning guide. And I really want to encourage you in the learning guide. We're going to be trying some new things with dropping some images and some articles and things like that. So as we journey, we're going to kind of create a scrapbook, if you will. Maybe a travel journey of Exodus. Of the things, how they speak to you um, other resources that you see that might come to play that you want to share with other people, we'll be introducing that platform as we go along. But like I said, we can't do this alone. And it's going to take work with that. It's going to take an active gospel imagination. We've talked about this at various times at Grace. Active in the idea that we are being, we're entering into, when we enter into Scripture, it's dynamic. It's alive. Right? The verse, the, the word is alive and active. I believe that. I don't believe that this, is a, that this is a static, ancient story. I believe that it's one that is still alive, still breathes, still interacts, still has the, the power to confuse us, to call us, to convict us, to comfort us. And so our imagination about Scripture likewise has to be active. It has to be alive. And it has to be centered in the gospel. We talk about, at Grace, we use a Christological hermeneutic. How's that for a big seminary word? Impress your friends and neighbors. Use Christological hermeneutic. Just drop that in a conversation. But basically what that means is that Jesus is our key to understanding Scripture. Jesus is like the definer. If you want to know what it, what it, what it means or if there's conflict or if there's misunderstanding, look at Jesus. How does Jesus relate to that Scripture? What does Jesus do with it? What is the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection of Jesus? How, how does that inform the story we're going to look at? Uh, one of my favorite artists, a uh, Belarusian Jewish immigrant named Mark Chagall. You're familiar with Chagall, but he, does a, he has a painting called The Exodus. And he's, he's a Jewish, Jewish guy, he was. But at the center of his picture, of his painting, his magnificent painting of the Exodus story is Christ on the cross. It's stunning. It's stunning because when we read Exodus, there is no mention of the crucifixion. There is no mention of Jesus there verbatim. However, when we look at Exodus, knowing what is coming with the cross, with the death, with the resurrection, we see that Exodus is a salvation story. It is a precursor to the gospel. And so when we say, when we read Exodus, we are doing so with that gospel imagination, with that idea of knowing that Jesus is prefigured in the Exodus story with that. And then lastly, imagination, which I've already talked about. I'm not going to belabor that. But I, I don't want us to come away from the story, the study of Exodus with just more facts. 
I want it to change our imagination. About us, about others, about the word, about the world. And we need to do this together because no one of us, myself included, is capable of doing this on your own. I, I, I miss stuff, y'all. I get it out of whack. I get it out of... I emphasize too much on one thing and not enough on another thing. I need people. I need y'all to help me understand this. Because I'm limited in what I can do by myself. And then, like I said, all along the way, we're going to be asking these questions. What is Israel being delivered from? What are we being called to be delivered from? And what are we being called delivered to? And maybe even ask another way to say that is, what are we delivered for? What are we delivered for? We're also going to hit a ton of vocabulary. Like if you, there's, there's so much vocabulary in Exodus that, that define the whole Christian imagination. I mean, we talk about just, just exile, slave, wanderer, pilgrim, Pharaoh, Moses, desert, Egypt, promised land, tabernacle, mountain, covenant, empire. All these things that have deep theological meaning, we encounter the, many of those for the first time in the book of Exodus. So we're going to need to keep a running, almost a running dictionary, a working dictionary of these things. And I'm going to introduce one word this morning that will make us all terrifically uncomfortable. And that is this word of empire. Egypt was an empire. The story of Israel is always in conflict with the empires of the world, whether that is the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks. The story of Israel is always the underdog, contra-empire. So we need to understand what is the what is the continual thread of empire that goes through. Well, empires make commodities out of people and vocations. Empires turn people into commodities, cogs in the machine, resources to be developed and used. Same with vocations. It categorizes and classifies you says, oh, this is your gift. You're going to do this? Okay, we're going to make you a this. And you're slotted into a process, into empire. And that becomes your transient identity. How often is one of the first questions we ask when we meet someone new? So what do you do? What do you do for a living? Right? It's just common. That's, a, that's, an, that's an empire way of thinking with that. Our identity comes from what we can produce. Our value is based on Worker, soldier, teacher, preacher, farmer, we're created to be bought and sold, used for the benefit of others, usually the owners. And of course, there's always a trade-off. I'm not saying it's all abusive. Of course, we get some perks from that. But empire, make no mistake, it's like going to Vegas, right? Like going to the casino. <laughs> Which I have a personal problem with, but I'm not. If you like to go to the casino, that's fine. But, but I just always think I always think about like, isn't it obvious that you're not there to win? Like the house is always stacked against you. You as an individual may come out ahead on one specific Saturday night where you got your numbers right, you got lucky. But on the whole. 
The casino wins. The house wins 100% of the time. It never loses on the whole. Empire doesn't lose. Empire wins. The owners, the people that control, they win. Not the workers. The empire. Empires are always authoritarian and hierarchical. Now, here's the thing. They can be benevolent or they can be malignant. They're often a combination of both, depending on the situation. But they're always hierarchical, and they're always authoritarian. It could be a very soft hand. It could be, a very, it could be couched in all kinds of win-win language. It could be couched in all kinds of, hey, we're going to give you the benefit. We're going to develop you. We're going to do this for you. And, and I'm, not, I'm not faulting that. I would much rather work for it in a situation like that. But remember, the empire always wins with that. It's always hierarchy. It's always authoritarian. Empires also are inherently exclusive and violent. Now, this is where you may say, well, hold on, hold on. I've been with you up till, but violent. Look, violence is not just the hand across the cheek. Violence is not just the shouted word. Violence is not just the pulling of a trigger, the shooting off, setting off of a bomb. Violence takes form all in its most insidious form when you don't even know it's violence. When it is a consistent belittling or othering. It is a consistent constriction of your imagination. It's a constriction being told, you are this and only this. It is a form of violence because it is impressed upon you without your consent. Empire is always violent. And it is inherently exclusive. It consists on pitting one group against the other. Now, this is, this is where it gets really sticky, y'all. And I'm just going to ask for your forbearance. One of, the basic, one of the basic responsibilities of doing scripture study well is to locate yourself in the story. Is to orient yourself to where you are reading it as a reader. We have been taught in our evangelical environment that when we read a story like Exodus, we are Israel. We are the oppressed people. We are God's chosen people. We are the ones being called out of slavery into this. In the New Testament, we're called to be with Jesus' fans. We're called to be the disciples. And while that may be true individually, and not a bad thing, inherently to truly understand this we have to understand that when we read Exodus we are Egypt our culture our way of doing things when we position ourselves and we see the experience we have to understand we're not we're not while we're yes we're under the rule of empire we're also part of empire we're also complicit in it. 
most of us in this room, I, I can't see a person in this room who doesn't have a kind of privilege. And I know that's a scary word in today's subject, but, but just think about what it is. We are privileged. We have education. We have money. We have access. We have ability. Yes, we've worked for those things. I'm not, I'm not demeaning anybody's work for it. But we've had, a help, we've had help along the way with that. And when we look at this story, and I want, us to, I want our imagination to be more and more as a pilgrim people, as, a, as the people of Egypt, we have to also come to terms, we do some repentance to understand we've acted like Egypt. A lot of the times we've acted like, like Egypt. We've acted more on the impulse of empire than we have as God's chosen people with this. And this happens throughout the Bible. When we read the New Testament, we do. Often I read it and I, I want to be Peter, I want to be John, I want to be Paul, but I'm often the Roman centurion. I'm often the Gentile you know, priest out there shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, if I have to think about how I tangibly live my life, I am much more aligned with empire than I am with an oppressed, persecuted, wandering people. How we receive Exodus defines its meaning to us. Has this happened or is it happening? This is similar to how we receive the Gospels. Does the message reinforce the dominant power? Has it just been domesticated and individualized, become a panacea, a kind of therapeutic deism to make you get through the day so that the established powers and rules can continue to work the way they are, the well-oiled machine? Or does it create within us the cry like the people were released from oppression, not just for ourselves but for others? And that's the thing. It, it, the, the quickest way to kill the Bible, the, the meaning of the Bible, is to hyper-individualize it. Make it all about you. Yes, the Bible is for you. Yes, it's for me, but it, it's not only for me. And unless the gospel is good news for everyone, it's not the good news. Unless it's the good news for the, for the, the, the poor, um, the prisoner or the poor, the homeless, those who are impressed in our society and talked against, those who are demonized, marginalized, unless it's good news for them, it's not good news for us. It can't be. It's only good news for, it becomes another marketing slogan of empire. Unless it is good news for everybody. And we need to identify with those. We need to, we need to constantly reframe our imagination to put ourselves in the place with those people. Not just thinking-wise, but acting-wise with them. Y'all, we live in a society, and, and again, I'm just asking you to bear with me. This is a, a journey I'm on. I'm still figuring it out. I don't have it all figured out. But more and more, I see that white people like me, especially white men like me, man, I need to be discipled out of that. Not that I'm going to stop becoming a man or stop becoming white, but I need to be discipled out of the, just the assumption that I'm at the top of the food chain. 
I need to be discipled out of that. I need to be looking at who's, who is being left out here. Who is not experiencing the gifts that I've been given? Who is not experiencing the privilege that I've been given? I need to look at that individually and in the small group and in systems too. Systems that defer to whiteness, maleness, wealth, education, ethnicity. Who, who is that oppressing? I Listen, and, and here's the thing. I, I hear it, all of us, because I say it in the same thing. I got this voice in my head saying, but I'm not racist, John. I love, insert, black people, Hispanic people, whatever it is you want to put here. I'm not racist, and I agree, you're not. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But racism is not a, just an attitude. It's not just an emotion. It exists separate from individual choices. It exists in systems. It exists in cultures. It exists in histories. Y'all, we're at the anniversary right now of Woodrow Wilson resegregating government 100 years ago, after Reconstruction, after the Civil War. the The one place where segregation actually took place was the federal government. In Washington, D.C., 10% of the overall workforce was African-American. Thriving middle class, a third of the city was African-American through the Great Migration from the South. The federal government was one of the only places where they could actually start a career in advance with that. Woodrow Wilson came in, did all that away. He reinstituted segregation. Now, this is 40 years after the Civil War, and it continued to get worse. We're 60 years away from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And that was two years after the Civil Rights Act was signed, enfranchising people on on the broadest scale known to date. It has consistently been eroded since then. It's out there. And we can say, hey, well, I'm not racist. I, I don't have a role to play in that. I get it, and it is overwhelming. Believe me, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with it. But I also, I go back to the quote, we can't fix it unless we face it. We can't fix everything. But if we don't face it, nothing will get fixed. As we look at Exodus, one of the big things, and I'm going to just preview, Laura's going to teach next week, and it's going to be awesome. But she talks about the power of naming things, of calling things out, of, of of just saying, because once you name them, you can't ignore them. So we have to name these things. And listen, this oppression isn't just racial. Um, There's a court case right now in Pennsylvania of a U.S. postal worker. He's Mennonite, and if you know anything about the Mennonites, they're really big into Sabbath, which I really appreciate. And uh, and he's like, hey, and he's like a 30-year veteran. And he was like, I don't work on Sundays. I'll, I'll pick up extra shifts on Saturdays, but I don't work on Sundays. And, and with the increase of the demands of on-time delivery from Amazon and all the places, Sunday deliveries are, are ubiquitous to us now, right? I mean, when I was growing up, you didn't get mail on Saturday or at Sunday. Now the UPS guy comes 10 o'clock Sunday morning and drops stuff off. Well, this, this guy, he said, he said, look, I'm, I'm just... He wasn't angry about it. He was accommodating in every way. I'll, I'll pick up shifts for other people, but I just, I'm not going to work Sunday. 
before the Supreme Court because the Postal Service was said, nope, business got to run. People got to get their packages. People have to have that next day delivery. Y'all, that's, that's empire. That's oppression. The people we're going to see in Exodus, people crying out, hey, let us go into the wilderness so we can worship. We're in a society right now that says there is no off time. It is 24-7, baby. Either through your phone, through your work email, through your obligations, through your commitments, through your job shifts that you have to do, it is 24-7. And this is where we can identify with the people of Israel going, Lord, save, hear our cry. We are overworked, overstimulated. Overexerted, overtaxed. There's empire inherent in our system with that. But it's complicated. It's complicated. That's why we're going to take this time to work it through. Listen, don't, don't walk out of here thinking that I've got it all figured out and I'm working towards some specific agenda. I don't. I'm just scratching the surface and I'm already over my head. read an interesting article about a, a worker who works for La Arche. Some of the, you are familiar here. It's an incredible ministry that has gone through some real shaking lately as it was uncovered that their founder was actually um, involved in some very, very destructive behaviors. He was, he was revered as a saint. And now it's come to light that he was incredibly abusive. But their work, their ministry is, is significant. They, they have group homes for people um, experiencing significant disability. And one of the workers who was, who was reflecting on this, she's like, how do, I, how do I walk out this tension that I reject everything that the founder, the guy who started this, I reject everything that he did oppressing and abusing these people. But I, I also realized that this is my job. I'm, I'm in this community now, and I serve these people. And I think that's kind of a that's kind of the taste we're going to get is we're going to we're going to consistently as we go through this book, as we go through this study, being hey, look, yeah, I I'm against empire. I don't want oppression. I don't want those things. But also, I'm in it. I'm part of it. I. We're all in it. I'm in it, y'all. We're all in it. And so how do we navigate that as we go? Well, we have to just understand that empire is contra the kingdom imagination. And we also have to understand that the gospel is not just about what happens once we leave. The gospel is not just about what happens to us after we die. Another Mennonite um, theologian, Eberhard Arnold, said this. He says, when Jesus demands repentance, it is not that he wants to take something from us, to rob us, to make us poor. No. He rejoices in offering it to us as a gift, which he gives in the great love for our souls. He wants us to repent in order to enrich us, to give us something to fill our souls with joy and to make us blessed. He is the physician who has come not just for the healthy, but the sick. He is a savior, savior who has not come not just to call the sinners to repentance, but us. Y'all, this may be the biggest single transition in my theological life 
is moving away from this idea that Jesus came to die so I can go to heaven when I die. Now look, go to heaven when you die, okay? It's much better than the other place. Not saying that it's either or. But y'all, that is just a small part of it. That's just a small part of what Jesus comes to offer through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We are offered life here now. We are offered riches and gifts, relationships and reality, the imagination to see and be in the world that brings life, that flourishes with that. But it's going to take a lot of unlearning. It's going to take a lot of exodus in our imagination to get to that point. So I'm going to invite Jeff and the worship team up here as we transition to communion and to worship. Um, At Grace Church, our practice of radical hospitality starts with living into our identity as a people delivered by God to freely be God's kingdom people. This formative goal, becoming who we are created and called to be, is reflected in and informs all of our beliefs. So I invite you on this journey to come. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.